Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Convocation on um, next a week from Friday, Knut will be receiving receiving an honorary degree. He's la- he's labeled a retired farmer and exceptional volunteer, and he has been involved in the community in many ways. And Lisa and I find when we walk into a crowd, you never have to introduce Knut to anybody because Knut knows them first. Anyway, a spectacular volunteer and expect spectacular citizen, and we're so privileged to have him. Um, leading us within SACFA, so can you stand up and wave? Thank you. They've instituted a new honorary degree. They call it the expert in hall walking. (laughs) I have walked the halls of the university and the college uh, for many years, and uh, it's been a great pleasure to be there, and I feel very honored to have been chosen, and I'll accept it on behalf of all the all the uh, unsung heroes. Okay, well, we're uh, approaching time for the question session. But before we do that, Duke has asked me to point out that we're working on a presentation this coming Tuesday by a Sean McMahon, and he's a professor at the American University in Cairo. He's visiting in Lethbridge apparently, and he's going to speak, provided he does speak, on are Egyptians better off since their recent Arab Spring Revolution. Sounds pretty interesting. But where would that be? At the library or? No, at the university. Oh, at the university. And details will be forthcoming. Now, we do have a presentation next week. And uh, we have our former Minister of Health and Wellness, then Minister of Energy, and finally, Minister of Finance, Mr. Ron Liepert, speaking next week. His topic will be, is a provincial sales tax or a revised tax system in Alberta inevitable? Should be quite interesting, too, I would think. And he should be well qualified to answer that. Now, you all know that SACPA has a website, and you can listen to the audio of past sessions on there. I won't say too much more about that. There's a suggestion box outside the door, too, apparently, for ideas on speakers. But I'd uh, like to get on with the question session, so Jason will have a chance to finish his presentation. (laughs) Ask the right questions, please. 
And uh, questioners, please come to the microphone. Remember to state your name. Keep your comments brief. Your questions succinct and just one or two at a time. Uh, no questions from the floor, please, as we're, we are recording this for the website. Jason, I think it's uh, up to you now. Hi, Jason. My name is Mark Sandylands. Uh, get less feedback here? I don't know. Anyway, thank you for the uh, fascinating talk. It was uh, a little bit uh, different vein and, and uh, uh, very, very interesting and enjoyable. Uh, I was a big fan of science fiction when I was uh, younger. I seem to have drifted away from it, uh, reading more political kinds of material these days. <coughs> One correction possibly. Um, I think Isaac Asimov introduced the idea of a handheld calculator in a short story uh, prior to the, uh, the uh, Foundation series. Uh, the story was of uh, a world where there was uh, intergalactic or interstellar wars and... Uh, a feeling of power? Pardon me? Was it a feeling of power? I can't remember the name of it. <coughs> um, and, and he knew what seven times eight was because... Well, the, everybody was uh, unable to do calculations except with their, with their handheld calculators. But then somebody found a, in an in a obscure archive somewhere a guy who could do uh, mathematics on paper. Uh, and in his head, he could even do square roots, they, they reported. <laughs> so they, they started training human beings with these techniques so that they could guide the rocket ships to the, uh, to the other stars. Because yeah, people were cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the story is called A Feeling of Power. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I believe the line is, and he knew what seven times eight was because he had learned it from a book. Um, so they, it wasn't actually piloting rocket ships to stars. The pilots were going to pilot bombs right. in, in the warfare. So you were actually reintroducing this idea of the kamikaze uh, pilot in, into this. Um, I, you, you may be right. I don't actually remember if the calculators there were handheld or not. They, you are right that they definitely had computers to do calculations, and he could, he could do things out by hand. I, I love that story, and what I particularly love about it is, <coughs> spoiler, um, at the end of it, he, he talks, the, 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 the pilot is, is uh, running his bomb in, but he has broken free of the, the chains of the, the computer uh, overlords, if you will, and it gave him such a feeling of power, which, which I found to be a, a very interesting. <laughs> so that, that's always what I think about when I think about that. Okay. But I'll go back and reread it. I love the story, so um, I'll, I'll certainly look into whether or not that's, uh, that's true. Okay. I also have a quibble with you about Superman, but I won't take up the extra time on that. <laughs> um, on global warming, um, and I'm happy to see that you also think Michael Crichton is a charlatan on, on uh, that issue. I hope you'll uh, straighten Dwayne out. Uh. <laughs> I, I have an entire talk on global warming, but that's not the one he asked for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, 
It seems that, that the, the movies that we see, in, in, uh, and with uh, even Michael Crichton's book, uh, uh, all seem to go in the vein that, that uh, the, the, the earth is not warming. I think of, of uh, a couple of movies, the titles of which I can't remember. I think one is The Day After Tomorrow, That's one um, of them, yeah. Dennis Quaid. Is that the one? Okay, so so uh, it seems like uh, global climate change leads to a sudden freezing, um, and and I, I wonder about the the what's behind this. Are there uh, actual futuristic novels about the consequences of global warming? As I said, I've gotten away from science fiction in recent years, um, and. If, if, if there are, I'd, I'd be interested to hear about them. So you're looking for and, science. And also your comments on why the, the movie depictions of global climate change talk about global freezing as, rather, as opposed to global warming. Um, so, so why the, the movies would depict freezing as opposed to warming, there, one, of the consequen one of the likely consequences of global warming is the climate changing specifically in Europe by shutting off the... Uh, the uh, warm ocean current comes up from the Gulf of Mexico and warms all of Europe, which would make Europe colder. It is far easier to show something dramatic cinematically, and I think that's why the movies are saying global warming, global warming, global cooling. Okay, we're now going to have like a nuclear winter kind of thing where we have a, a new ice age. Um, I have not come across very much in the way of novels that are depicting climate change. There have been a number of short stories. Uh, there was a recent anthology edited by Hayden Trenholm, put out by Bundoran Press, a Canadian press, um, that includes several stories that actually talk about the consequences of climate change. Uh, ocean levels rising, uh, food shortages. My, my wife actually wrote a story in that uh, set here in Alberta called The Blood is in the Cows. It's a, a murder mystery about the uh, murdering cows. Um, it's better than I'm making it sound. My wife's <laughs> going to kill me. Uh, it's a really good story. So there's actually an entire anthology there called Blood and Water. Uh, it was published in 2012 by, and the publishers, uh, Bundoran and the, uh, the editor is Hayden Trenholm. Um, other than that, I've come across a few things mostly in the magazines. The problem is it's not really exciting a lot of drama. In, in order for, for a story to really sell, it has to sort of move people. Um, for political science fiction, though, I would suggest reading Scalzi, John Scalzi, Old Man's War, is a fascinating book uh, where they raise the, they raised the um, uh, conscript age to 75. And people over the age of 75 are forced into the military, men and women alike, are forced into the military. And um, it is quite possibly the best science fiction book that's come out in the last 20 years. I haven't read anything by John Scalzi that I haven't enjoyed. Um, I particularly suggest if you're gonna start with him, Old Man's War is great, and it, there's some wonderful politics in there. Uh, other than starting to, to hawk my wife's, my wife runs Taiki books. Uh, other than starting to hawk my wife's books, I, I think I'll, I'll leave it off there. My name is Van Christou. Thank you very much, uh, Jason, for a, a fascinating presentation. Um, 
your thesis that uh, science fiction has had a, an integral part to role, a role to play in, in terms of uh, uh, progressing the rapidity of scientific uh, development uh, is, is, is a very interesting one. And, uh, and I'm sure it has, has a great deal of reality behind it. Uh, my question uh, uh, comes from uh, the, the uh, observation that during my lifetime, the speed of this change that's come about by scientific development has been so rapid and, and accelerating in its rapidity that as that's happened, uh, the concept that came to us from a lot of the older nations in the world, particularly the Chinese culture, that the aged, in the aged people in the uh, uh, community, rather than being sent to war, like your story uh, uh, refers to, were the ones that uh, really uh, had the wisdom within the society and were revered and, and uh, respected because of that. Uh, it seems to me that as this rapidity in, in scientific development uh, progresses, there's a greater disconnect between the elderly and the young. And uh, that as that disconnect uh, increases, uh, the elderly people are marginalized and uh, are out of touch uh, with, with the younger people and what's really going on. And the geeks are really amongst the teenagers now. And uh, the real progress is happening down there. Um, would you say, the, my question is, do you think that Star Wars is indeed marginalizing the, the elderly in our society? support that. Uh, first of all, Star Wars specifically, because you said Star Wars, not Star Trek. No, 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 I'm going to answer on Star Wars. <laughs> and then I'll, then I'll talk Star Trek. Um, Star Wars, especially if you look at episode four, A New Hope, the first one that came out in 1979, specifically with the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi, you are talking about a classic mentorship role. And Mark Hamill's character of, of Luke Skywalker is going through the coming of age and, and it is the magician's apprentice sort of thing. So Star Wars, quite specifically, the, the original trilogy, and if you want to talk prequels, ask me afterwards. Um, but, but the Star Wars, the original trilogy, for me, is actually the arc of Luke Skywalker first finding a mentor who is not his father and then eventually coming to grips with who his father is, and forgiving him, and the father coming to grips with who he is. So I would say Star Wars, absolutely not. Star Trek, on the other hand, is, especially in the first iteration, um, very much about young, good-looking people going around and being, it, it's a Western. You know, and that's how Gene Roddenberry pitched it, was, was wagon trails for the stars. Um, and that, that's, why, that's why Kirk's always getting into these fist fights, right? It's a Western. It is a science fiction uh, TV show, but it is in its original incarnation of Western. And in Star Trek The Next Generation, you finally start seeing a little bit of the age disparity that would exist between, say, the captain of the starship and the rest of his crew in, in having uh, Jean-Luc Picard be somebody who is a little older than Captain Kirk. Uh, but I don't think science fiction is particularly guilty of that in the television and movies compared to the non-science fiction in that everyone portrayed in science, in, in television and movies is young. Al almost everybody is. 
Now, as to the, the widening gap, I don't know. Um, I've only lived now. And one of the things that I've already started to see is that my perceptions of events change as I get older. Even perce perceptions of events that happened 30 years ago, when I was seven. Um, <laughs> so you didn't have to guess. So <laughs> come out and say it. So 30 years ago, I, I, I remember something happening like, wow, that was just so, and, and I'm looking back now that I have my own children going, I have a different view now. And the, the gap between the, the old and the young has long been a problem. I, 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 I like the quote, um, children today have no respect for their elders. They gobble their food. They listen to loud music. The world is just, you know, being destroyed by, by our young people, by Plato in 5 BC. <laughs> so whether that sentiment is increasing or decreasing, I don't know. It has certainly not suddenly erupted where it had never been before. There is in Canadian and American culture, I think, an obsession with youth. People refusing to acknowledge how old they are, um, people refusing to honor that something, there are some things that one can only learn through age and wisdom. Um, I think specifically as the baby boomer generation starts getting into more and more conflict with Generation X, so part of my parents versus the, the kids that are younger than me, and that way I can step out and pretend to be completely innocent of this. Um, I, I'm seeing a conflict that I think is better documented and is louder because of things like blogs, where anybody who can, who can type can write up an opinion. So we're getting more and more divisive opinions because we're not getting nearly as much editing which I don't know translates to an actual greater divide, but I can certainly see where that would translate to a greater perception of divide. I do think scientific progress is increasing, and I would love to blame science fiction for that. But I'm actually gonna go the other direction. Science fiction has become a lot less interesting in the last 20 years. Sorry. I, I yeah, I, I'm glad somebody agrees with me. Um, <laughs> And I think part of the reason for that is we can't keep up. Science fiction is having difficulty coming up with something that people aren't just inventing. Right? And one of the reasons that H.G. Wells came up with everything is a brilliant man. Like, wow, H.G. Wells, I had no idea until I started researching this topic how brilliant he was. Sits down and it's like, what could science possibly do? Maybe. And we've spent a century catching up with him. And everybody else has sort of copied that. And I think what we're seeing now is, like, a friend of mine back in grad school is actually working on a credit card-sized machine that can take your blood and analyze, you know, it, it, it's a doctor in your pocket. Like, that's a tricorder. And she was working on this. What does sci-fi have to top that? I still read science fiction, but most of the stuff that I read is from the 50s and 60s, because that's when it was good. I don't know if I completely answered your question, but those are my, my thoughts on that. Knut Peterson is my name. Uh, this question might be just ever so slightly off topic, and I don't know if the, our moderator is going to allow that, but I was wondering if you could, if there's any parallels to be drawn between political science fiction and what's happening in today's world. 
That's um, probably a pretty big question, but. So, so I'll, actually, I'll actually sort of reiterate what I just said. There was a time, and, and I'll, I'll refer to Aldous Huxley with Brave New World. Uh, George Orwell wrote a couple books. Anybody? 1984. 1984 was originally titled 1948, right? And it came out in 1949. Why was it titled 1948? Because it was supposed to be about what was going on now rather than what is going on in the future. I sum up Aldous Huxley's Brave New World as meh, who cares? And George Orwell as Big Brother is watching you. Um, the, the Canadian uh, science fiction author, Rob Sawyer, has put out a book called Wake, a series of three books called Wake, Watch, Wonder, which despite my previous criticism of science fiction today isn't very good. Those three books, and Rob Sawyer in general, are actually really worth checking out. Um, and his premise is that Big Brother got a bad rap. And this idea that we can now observe in a way that we could never observe before. We have a level of transparency we were always incapable of before. So whether we're talking about conservatives like Harper or I guess Obama counts as a liberal, uh, a Democrat like, like Obama or Bush or, or Trudeau or, or whomever, we now have the ability to observe these people with greater scrutiny, which has led to, like I just said before about science fiction, I think science fiction's having trouble keeping up. George Orwell's book, 1984, was a mind shake for its era. And it's almost, I mean, I wouldn't quite go so far as to say it's passe, I think it's very relevant. But I don't think it's nearly as groundbreaking because we're seeing it so much. We're seeing the manipulation. We're seeing the governments getting up and saying ridiculous things, calling us to do and support ridiculous claims. But we're now seeing it so much that we've become a little inured to it and it's become a bit passe. So science fiction today, the, the difficulty with writing science fiction, and, and I have actually published a couple stories as, as a science fiction author, and I publish under a pseudonym because I don't want my students figuring out what I, what I write, because it's, it's messed up stuff. It's, it's, yeah. My wife reads it and goes, are you okay, honey? <laughs> um, the problem with writing science fiction is that it has to be believable. And reality is not constrained that way, right? When I, <laughs> when I, when I look at, at what is actually happening in the political arena in the US and in Canada, they don't have to try and make it believable. <laughs> As a matter of fact, there almost seems to be something they can hide behind where they've gone beyond what science fiction would, would be willing to try and do because, well, nobody's really gonna believe that there's I hate to beat up on the global warming thing again, but um, nobody really wants to believe that there's a huge government conspiracy that's keeping us from actually knowing how bad global warming's gonna be. That's just so unthinkable, we can't think it. That we're being lied to over and over again by exactly how bad things are getting. And it's not just global warming, that's just, that, was, that was the low-hanging fruit. Uh, acid rain's another one, hole in the ozone layer, although that's been getting better lately. Um, there's all these unthinkable things that Science fiction just can't go there, really. I think you're supposed to go to the mic. So, okay, so I'll do a little dance to distract people. 
I'm John Plaxton. You're talking about science fiction and science. Have you been reading about the Thunderbolts project and the Electrical Universe project? No. Sorry. You should. <laughs> Is this a DC power distribution? No. Okay. No. It's it's uh, Wall Thornhill and his group are are showing how history and readings nowadays indicate that there's a lot of electricity in the solar system and in the galaxy in general that has not been taken into account. It's a whole new branch of science at the very beginning of it all. If you haven't checked out thunderbolts.info or Wall Thornhill, you should. Because okay. there's a whole new basis for a whole new science and series of books, stories for your authors. This one is live. Uh, I see we don't have a questioner at the mic right now, so I, uh, someone asked about Isaac Asimov, and uh, I haven't read much of his science fiction, but I did read a book of his, I think it was published about 1965, which was titled uh, Energy and Life, or Energy for Life. I thought it was an excellent book that uh, described the role of energy in every aspect of our lives mm -hmm. up to the atomic age, and I think maybe just before the discovery of DNA. Would uh, Isaac's uh, science fiction work uh, tend to discredit his sane scientist work as expressed in Energy for Life? Sane scientist? Sane, sane scientist. Oh, saint. Sane. Sane. As opposed to mad. Ah. Um, I don't know. I know that Isaac Asimov edited a collection of Soviet science fiction. My Russian is very poor. I, I took two quarters of Russian in college, and what I learned was the alphabet. My fault, not Russians. Um, and it was fascinating reading the, uh, the Russian science fiction collection because it started from such a different a different basis um, I've known a lot of scientists and we're just people which uh, I, I go back to that uh, group of seventh graders who who went to uh, Fermi labs um, I picture a scientist as a genius thanks I think they can calculate almost anything I can balance my checkbook sometimes uh, I think of weird experiments and bottles of chemicals, and I think of big explosions and atoms and molecules. But after visiting, he said, scientists are normal people just like us all. They do the same things and act just like us. I'm not sure I quite agree with that. I thought I was giving a 60-minute presentation and had to cut it back to 30, so all of the Big Bang stuff got taken out. Um, most of them speak foreign languages. I speak Esperanto. <laughs> people actually know what that is? Wow. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm fluent in Esperanto. Um, don't ask why. Uh, <laughs> that is outside the scope of this. S so scientists aren't always stuck in their offices. They live outside of their labs too. Some like to do outdoor activities. Others like to read or do things inside. So scientists are sane people. Scientists are working on big problems. And the media, both the fictional media and the, the less fictional media, portrays scientists as working alone. And we really see that a lot, where there's this scientist working alone in a lab, making one big discovery. 
that changes the world for a little while, and then, and then that somehow gets recanted. And that's really not factually true. Scientists are working on this one insurmountable Rubik's Cube type problem. Uh, one famous example of this would be, um, uh, I just blanked on his name, I can see his face. Well, the people who were, who were first fusing nuclei together were really shocked to discover that there was a practical application. So it's not that scientists are really insane or sane, and, and certainly you know, Albert Einstein got a lot of press out of being completely crazy, and he played that up far more than was realistic. He, he was deliberately manipulating his media to a certain extent. Um, but uh, speaking as a scientist, when I'm working in my lab, I'm not trying to figure out how to change the world, I'm trying to figure out how to get my equipment to work. And I'm part of a huge ensemble of people that are all trying to inch the collective knowledge forward slightly. Have I answered your question? Uh, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing about scientists. Can you re-ask your question, please? Well, I was just wondering if his work as a science fiction writer might have uh, discredited his real basic science work. I believe he oh. was a qualified chemist. Uh, biochemist, yeah. Biochemist? Uh, Isaac Asimov had a PhD in biochemistry and he wrote some wonderful and fascinating popular science. Um, to the best of my knowledge, he never did any real significant scientific research, but his, his nonfiction is actually quite highly regarded. If anyone does need to read Shakespeare, uh, he wrote what I consider to be the, the most readable guide to Shakespeare. It's about yay thick, and I love it. Mm -hmm. um, I have a book of his on physics, and he's not a physicist, but he certainly writes better than most of us do. Uh, <laughs> So I think, I think his nonfiction was actually taken quite seriously. His Energy for Life book is very thought-provoking. Yeah. Uh, is there time for one last question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, three minutes. Jason, you mentioned a little bit about women in science fiction or the lack of women. Uh, could you relate a little bit about uh, Star Trek? We had a woman in Star Trek, and also, of oh. course, we have Superwoman now and uh, several other uh, famous women as I of late. I, I wish my wife were here to defer to. She, she has far more expertise on, on comic books than I do. Uh, no, I'm not kidding. Um, so she, uh, she, Superwoman actually goes back a fair ways to a point where the comic book authority was attempting to sanitize comics and create sort of families of, of the superheroes and then come up with the, the female version. So I, Superwoman's actually, Supergirl and Superwoman, I think, are actually uh, a little older. Um, my, my wife just released a book on Canadian, uh, it's called uh, Mass Mosaic. It's a Canadian comic book uh, heroes, but done in, in, in novel form. Uh, your other example before Superwoman was? Uh, Star oh, Star Trek, yes. So we were talking over lunch about uh, the influence of Star Trek. Well, while I only have three minutes to say about the, the influence of Star Trek on technology, it had some really incredible um, implications for, for women and, and racial relationships as well. Uh, Star Trek The Next Generation in 1963 aired the first interracial kiss. Now, that's 1963, and Kirk and Uhura actually kissed. 
Something to keep in mind, Uhura was basically a telephone operator. I mean, if you, if you look at what she was doing, she was basically a telephone operator. And she was kind of disgusted with this demeaning role that she was put in, so much so that she was going to quit the show. And she got a call from Martin Luther King Jr. himself on the phone saying, please, please, please don't quit the show. You are such an inspiration for so many people, and we need you to be up there and be public. A few, quite a few years later, in, um, in a, a future iteration of Star, or a later, excuse me, iteration of Star Trek, the first same-sex kiss was actually also on Star Trek, still leading the way. So while Star Trek had certain technology things like sliding doors, which actually dates back to H.G. Wells, just saying, but they actually showed it, <laughs> on the television, they had to build these things. There's a number of very funny stories about that. Um, Star Trek led the way in a lot of social movements because it moved things so far into the future, people could step back and say, huh, maybe the Russians aren't so bad. Because having Chekhov was also really kind of strange for the early 60s. That was really pretty, pretty out there. Same thing with Sulu. We have a mixed racial thing, a mixed racial Star Trek. So I'm not qualified to give the social implications of Star Trek. I'd love to hear that talk if you guys find that out there. Okay. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate being uh, invited to come down. Thank you.